All right, thank you for joining us. Um, Resurrection Sunday, um, even though it's not even Easter, uh, today in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, I think that's where we're going to start. Um, if we could, you know, one thing about um, studying Grudem, he's got so much scripture packed in there, but if we don't kind of start by reading that immediate uh, uh, passage, we can talk about all the systematic theology and not get, not get the scripture enough. So let's start there um, this afternoon, 1 Corinthians 15. I think if there's one chapter where you could call it the resurrection chapter, that would be it. And, um, and it is certainly uh, packed with so much, um, so many exciting things concerning the resurrection. Oh, before we go, and I just have to ask you to turn, Papa, what page was it? To uh, look at what's to come, 281, if you have your white book, 281, the order of salvation. If summer wasn't exciting enough, um, it's getting ready to get even better. Look at the order of salvation at the bottom of page 281. That's what we have coming in the next uh, 12 weeks here. We have next week... Um, Lord common willing, grace. common grace, yeah. And then after that, it's those 10 steps of uh, salvation, if you will. And those are going to be, uh, that's a fascinating study. And Grudem does a great job on those. But um, Scott, would you pray for us? And then Mark, would you read 1 Corinthians 15? And if you would like to skip any part of it that you feel like we, we need to time-wise, you can. But uh, there's just so much of that's where we're going to be there. But Scott, if you'd start by praying, we'll go to it. Sure, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful, uh, as always, to be able to gather here and to be able to open up Grudem's book and especially to open up your word and uh, just what a privilege it is to be able to do this. And as we come to this incredible passage, Father, as we come to consider the resurrection from the dead, I, I pray that we, uh, of Jesus from the dead, I pray that we would be strengthened in our faith as we study this afresh. Uh, yes, it is great news that Christ died, but it is great news that he has been raised from the dead. As Paul says, he has been raised for our justification. So I pray that we would be strengthened and encouraged in our faith. And as Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So I pray, Father, that uh, we would leave here today wanting to shake off laziness and slothfulness and that we would give ourselves fully and gladly to the Lord's work in light of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> and we could even stop at a few points and talk about it as we mm -hmm. go. But <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, we won't read the whole chapter, but we'll read a, a portion of it. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15. The word of the Lord. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, <clears throat> and then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared uh, also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. 
So any comments about those first 10, 11 verses? Well, Paul keeps the main thing the main thing. I think that's what he's trying to tell us. Explain he, that, Papa. Well, he jumps right in. He just says, uh, uh, he's reminding us of the gospel, which everything that we teach, Mark preaches, uh, Scott preaches, uh, Greg preaches, Jerry preaches, should remind us of the gospel. I mean, that's the bottom line of, of our faith. But he reminds us that, that you receive and, and by which you stand. In other words, that's the foundation. Uh, and that's by the means by which you're being saved. Uh, he's delivered for, uh, of first importance. He, he, he just he chronicles this. Uh, he died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried. He was raised again on the third day. And then he chronicles who he appeared to very carefully. He's, he's, he's setting a testimony as to the validity, the authentication of what Christ did. 500 of those guys, why don't you go talk to some of them if you're not so sure, right? Well, that's right. Some of them are still some around. Some are still around, yeah. Scott, well, I, um, two things I'd like to hear from you. One, the gospel is of first importance to you and Paul from first three here. Tell us why that is and tell us why we need it. The, the believer as much as the unbeliever. Yeah, I mean, so often, I mean, Jerry, I've learned this from Jerry Bridges, I think, where he, he would say so often you give a new believer the gospel and then once they become a Christian, you put the gospel on the shelf and people think it's like the, the, uh, the training wheels of the Christian life, but really it's the A to Z. It's not the ABC, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. We're so prone to forget the gospel, I think, but it's like we talked about last time, we, we so desperately need to remember the gospel week in and week out, day in and day out. You said every minute of every day because the gospel strengthens us. I think of 2 Timothy 2, where he says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's not like we're pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. No, we're, we're diving into the gospel. We're diving into the sea of God's grace to be strengthened afresh by the gospel because it will propel us out into obedience. It keeps us from being proud. Uh, it keeps us from being uh, down and out because of our sin, because we're, we're, we're practicing sinners every day, Bridges would say. So over and over, it's just such a healthy thing to get the gospel, get it down big, uh, make it first important. If you're forgetting the gospel, a great place to come to is just 1 Corinthians 15. Read the first few verses and you are reminded afresh, here's the gospel like in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, Mark, you've never been resurrected. Why would you say that you believe Jesus was? Give us your top 108 reasons here because I, I've loved listening to you on this in the, in the past, but there's just so much. And there might not be any of us that are doubting that. May, probably not. Maybe no one listening on the World Wide Web is doubting it. But why would you say you believe it? Yeah, I mean, when you think about other claims of other religions, you've got maybe Muhammad claims to be in a mountain and he meets an angel and the angel gives him revelation and he comes down and tells it to his followers and his followers write it down and eventually you have the Quran. Well, that, that's based on one individual in an isolated experience claiming that he met an angel, which for all I know, he may have met an angel, a fallen angel perhaps, you know, I mean, we, 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 who, who knows? But it's, it's based on an independent person off in, in isolation seeing something or saying that they saw something. You take Joseph Smith with the Book of Mormon. Uh, what is Joseph Smith? Joseph Smith, when he was 14, he's out in the woods and he meets the father and the son. Quite a walk in the woods right there when you meet the father and the son. Mm. He, he talks about what they told him and how he was a, an ancient seer predicted and he was this prophet and all these things. And he ends up having an encounter with the angel Moroni. And well, where, where does this happen in public? Is there, is there public verification? Uh, you, you have basically one independent individual's testimony saying, you got to trust me on this. And there, there's no sort of public aspect. Uh, with, with a lot of the claims of Buddhism or Hinduism, these are things that we have no access to whatsoever. You know, the, the gods were fighting, and out of the belly button of one of the gods came earth or something. You know, just these 
strange sort of mythological things. How do we have any way of testing or verifying any of these things? We can't. But with this, you have a person who was a publicly known figure, known by thousands of people. He's talked about by both Christian and non-Christian ancient historians. His crucifixion is one of the most widely attested events in ancient history. I mean, just go read Why Do We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams. The evidence for Jesus' life and His crucifixion under Pilate is staggering based on the limited data we have from that time period. To have as many people talking about this in such a short span of time is inexplicable apart from resurrection. So, how does the early church get born? How do you change 10,000 Jewish people in their way of life so that they're no longer so much observing the Sabbath as now observing a new day, the Lord's Day? How do you change an entire framework of viewing God? It was blasphemy to consider someone to be God, a person. If you think Moses is God, blasphemy. If you think Abraham is God, blasphemy. Now they're worshiping a man, a Jewish man, as God, as divine. That would be complete unthinkable heresy to a Jewish person. How is it that in Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews, this religion is born where a man is worshiped as divine? Overturning the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, things that Jews died for 200 years earlier under a pagan foreign king from Syria, now they're willing to throw those out in order to follow Jesus under the freedom of the justification in, in the gospel. How do you explain these massive changes that then change all the world? Uh, somebody, we were talking with somebody a while back, and uh, Christianity is the only religion where its home base has been moving over the centuries. Hmm. With Islam, it stays where it was born in the Middle East. With Hinduism, it stays where it was born. Same thing, just pick, pick a religion. It has stayed most popular where it was birthed. But Christianity, born in the Middle East, born in Jerusalem, migrates up to Europe, becomes dominant for uh, over a thousand years, then moves to the North American continent. Now it's sort of waning in North America and Europe. It's sort of post-Christian. Now where is it going? It's going to South America. It's going now to Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa is exploding with the gospel. China, uh, I think South Korea, a lot of these countries are, what's going on? This is showing that this is not a localized religion. This is not a religion that's only true to some culture. This is a religion that has found a key in every human heart. It's found a key in every culture, and it's, its ability to move across the world, change history for the good. Uh, Jesus influenced, has, influenced, has influenced Western culture and the world more than any individual. He's also a man who claimed to be divine, unlike Buddha, unlike Joseph Smith, unlike uh, Muhammad. He claimed himself to be the Son of God. The resurrection, I think, just on those accounts is something that even the most skeptical secular person would be a fool not to at least take seriously. I mean, even from a secular perspective, the claims of Christianity are so strong that there would be something wrong intellectually if you weren't going to go put that to the test and go actually investigate that. And we found with lots of Christians over the years, when they have gone to investigate the truth claims of the resurrection, many of these people have become Christians while investigating the evidence. So, the evidence is very compelling for, for the bodily resurrection of yeah, Jesus. Yeah, good. Papa. What's the book, The Case for Christ? Yeah. Uh, this guy was a, uh, what's his name? Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a, um, I guess, investigative reporter, sort of a legal type, covering um, crime cases and, and that type thing, and got married. His wife was an atheist, a non-believer like himself, and she comes to Christ. And so he takes on the project of disproving her faith. And in the process, wrote the case for Christ and came to faith himself and has written a number of books subsequent to that. And Papa, you are doing the research on Jesus, not only was resurrected, but predicted that he would resurrect. That's right. I mean, he says multiple times in the Gospels, in the, at least three Gospels that we know of, that he's going to, uh, he tells his disciples uh, that I'm going to be crucified, buried, and resurrected on the third day third day. He even says that 
that the officials, the local officials, are going to do that. And um, so he's, he's fulfilled his own prophecy in spite of all the Old Testament prophecy to that effect. Yeah. Scott? Yeah. I, I was just thinking of the appearances. He, Grudem begins with the New Testament evidence, and it's overwhelming. And I was thinking about uh, Thomas. Uh, it's got to be one of my favorite resurrection appearances. We all know that story of Thomas. You know, he's there. I mean, he wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the 12. Thomas is not there. And he, Thomas comes back, and they're all excited. And then you remember Thomas is so strong. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Mm-hmm. Thomas saying, I'm never going to believe unless I place my hands there. And Sproul, which is the sermon you sent us, Sproul said, uh, it wasn't so much the empty tomb that convinced the disciples. It was the resurrection appearances that convinced the disciples. Certainly that was the case with Thomas. Yeah. Eight long days pass. You can, like John Bloom has written powerfully on that, what Thomas must have been thinking those eight days probably discouraged, down and out, everything's gone. But then eight days later, he's there with the disciples, doors are locked, Jesus appears in their midst, and he says, peace be with you. And then he looks at Thomas, I'm sure he locks eyes with Thomas, those powerful words, and he, and he says to Thomas, uh, put your finger here and see my hands and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then Sproul said, he's sure that Thomas falls on his knees and worships my Lord and my God. I mean, there it is, the, the resurrection. I mean, Thomas was not going to believe. And then uh, history tells us that he went to India. I think he maybe died in India, taking the gospel to India. Well, what possible way can you explain that transformation other than the resurrection? It's just so strong. When you come and examine the evidence, we should be strengthened afresh in our faith that Jesus has been raised. And just on this point... Many of you know this already, but it's just worth repeating if you know this. People will sometimes say, well, you know, in, in 9-11, we saw some radical Islamic terrorists who gave their life for their religion. And so people would say, just because someone dies for their religion cannot prove that that religion is true. You could probably find someone who's died for just about any religion out there. And I would say, okay, here is the, here's the distinction we've got to keep in mind between the disciples and the apostles dying for their claims about Christ's resurrection and like the 9-11 terrorists dying for what they claimed was true. There's no doubt the 9-11 terrorists were sincere. I have, obviously, if they were not sincere, they would not have given their life for it. So what's the difference? The 9-11 terrorists were saying, we believe what Muhammad saw and said was true. They weren't saying what we saw and said was true. They're saying what this other man, uh, 1,500 years ago, what he saw and said in the mountain with the angel, what he saw, we believe that's true. So we're, we're putting everything on his testimony and on the Quran. We're trusting that. The, the disciples are in a very different category. This is so important that we see this distinction. They're not dying for what they believe someone else saw. They're dying for what they say they saw. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> if, if anyone knew whether they were lying or not, Guess who that? Guess who it was? It was them, right? Wow. When they stood up and said, we, we met the risen Jesus. We had breakfast with them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We walked with them, some of us on the road to Emmaus, seven miles. We, we broke bread with them. We ate fish with them. We were in the upper room with them. We were on the mountain with them in Galilee. We saw him ascend uh, in Jerusalem back to heaven. I mean, th- these are not just, it's not, it's not one person seeing a shadowy figure, okay? You know, it's not that. This, this is lots of people over 40 days in many different settings, in many different places, all saying that they walked with, talked with, ate with, fellowship with the risen Jesus, saw him ascend back to heaven. Th- that kind of testimony is not something based on a hallucination. This is based on people were there, and either they are lying and they know they're lying, and therefore they're dying for what they know is a lie. Who would do that? Or they're telling the truth because they were there, they saw it, and they're dying for what they know is true. Now, if you saw someone defeat death, and you're trusting that he can defeat death for you, would that not give you the courage to die for that truth? 
Yes, that would perfectly explain all the strangeness of early church history of how, how could this have happened? Well, if you believe a guy rose from the dead and can do that for you, then you can trust him and die for him. Mm-hmm. He died for you, you can die for him in a very different kind of way. But if, if it was a lie, and they knew it was a lie, and the first one of them gets beaten up and stoned, Stephen gets stoned, that's when I, I mean, I'm calling it quits long before then, but when mm-hmm. Stephen gets stoned, I'm going, okay, joke's up, we made this up, put us in prison, whatever you want to do, but please don't kill us, we take it back. Then after, you keep going, then, then after James the apostle is killed in Acts uh, 12, then you go, okay, now it's really up, now one of the apostles is dead, and then when Paul is beheaded, or when Peter's crucified upside down, then John and the rest are going, okay, game's up. But they never say game's up. They keep going all the way to the bitter end, dying brutal, horrible deaths. Why? Because what they were saying is what they knew to be true. They weren't basing this on something else. They knew from their own eyes that it was true. That's powerful. You mentioned powerful. There you go. There was the power of the Holy Spirit was evident in their life. Peter, for example, was a radically different person. Yeah. Coward to pretty bold. Coward to pretty bold. Mm -hmm. You got it. Yep, that's great. Um, On the bottom of uh, 263, doctrinal significances of the resurrection. I find these fascinating. Uh, And he lists three of them. Ensures our regeneration. I normally don't think of the resurrection in that that light. Any insight on that from you guys? Well, it's Peter, I guess, that uses the word living hope. And, yeah. and uh, I think in, unless you're regenerated, uh, you can't appreciate that, that, that he is your reason for hope. Now, what, what does Romans say, Jerry? Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes and what he sees. If we hope what we do not see, we wait for it with patience or something like that. Yeah, it's great. Uh, absolutely. That, that second one ensures our justification and when I went a half a century of my life without even thinking about this. The idea that um, there's a quote in there at the top of 265 of God saying to Christ, I approve of what you've done and you have found favor in my sight through the resurrection. I, I find that really um, fascinating and, uh, and, and it's got to be right. He goes on to explain this, explains how Paul can say, that Christ was raised for our justification. If God, was ra- if God raised us up with him, then by virtue of our union with Christ, God's declaration of approval of Christ is also his declaration of approval of us. When the Father in essence says to Christ, all the penalty for sins has been paid, and I find you not guilty, but righteous in my sight. That's what it means to be justified, where God pounds the gavel of heaven and he declares we are not guilty, all the penalty for sins have been paid, and I find you not guilty, but righteous in my sight. He was thereby making the declaration that would also apply to us when we trusted Christ for salvation. In this way, Christ's resurrection also gave final proof that he has earned our justification. Any thoughts on that one? That's the great exchange. Mm-hmm. He took our sin, Traded our gave sin us for... his righteousness. Yeah. Amazing. And then this is the one I think that we tend uh, tend to think about that the Christ's resurrection uh, gains our confidence that we'll be resurrected as well. Can you guys talk about the resurrection? When Papa and I were talking this week, we always came to the same conclusion. We're going to have to ask Mark. That's pretty much <laughs> the conclusion that we came to. So Mark, we're asking you, could you help us to understand the timeline of our new body 
also throw in an extra tidbit for us on what this intermediate state is like if we die today between now and when we get our new body. Could you help us with the timeline and then also with what that's like if we go today? Yeah, so, so some of, going back Thursday night with the sexual revolution and things like that, some of what's going on there is that there's a denial of the importance of the physical body. Remember we talked about this some, especially with the transgender uh, movement, to where 50 years ago you thought if you were, tra if you were uh, transgender you'd think there's this problem with my thinking, not with my body. Today people think there's a problem with my body, not with my thinking. And what we've done is we've made the psychology the ultimate part and the body has become malleable. You can change it however you want through surgeries, through hormonal treatments. Okay, what does that have to do with the resurrection? It actually does relate to this because <clears throat> as Christians we can have a tendency sometimes to also denigrate the physical. The Bible never denigrates the physical. Now, the physical world is under a curse, right? It's, we're, we're, we're cursed. Thorns infest the ground, all that kind of stuff. There's earthquakes and tsunamis, and there's sickness and disease and death because we're under the curse, Romans 8. But the future hope is not a bodiless existence of spirit in the clouds. And sometimes we've, you know, I kind of grew up, no one, I don't think, told me this, but I kind of grew up intuitively thinking that it was just, I'm a spirit up in a cloud, you know, Somehow strumming a harp, I don't know how that works with spirit fingers, but uh, I, I would be strumming a harp up in the cloud. But in, in the Bible, something is still drastically incomplete when we are just a soul. Now listen, when we die, Paul says to depart and be with Christ without my body is better by far than staying here in this sinful world. That is true. So it is far better because we're in the immediate presence of Jesus. But Paul also says that's not the end goal. The end goal is the reuniting of body and soul in the resurrection of the dead, which doesn't happen the second you die. That happens altogether later, right? We, we will be raised from the dead uh, at the return of Christ. There's debates about exactly how that works amongst Christians, but there's going to be a final resurrection of the dead where we will all have our soul and body united, never to be separated again, and then we will be on, an, on a renewed earth. So that I, if we lose the importance of the physical, it's actually going to hurt our discussion on the sexual revolution because we, we need to honor both the physical world that God has made and the spiritual world God has made, and ultimately these things are united in the resurrection. So to be fully and truly completely human, we must have body and soul. And, and and God brings those together. And, you know, these, these statements, I think they're kind of said carelessly. I've heard a, a Christian has said, you know, you don't have a body, or you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. To me, that's moving in a bad direction. I understand what the person means by that, but we are meant to be body and soul in eternity. And so, uh, Christ gives the greatest dignity possible to the physical body by it being in, an indispensable part of the gospel, that he was raised physically, bodily, from the dead. And, and that's our future hope, is that we will experience uh, a similar raising. Yes, you know, Scott? Oh, Gruden, go ahead, Papa. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Gruden, I don't actually mention this, but you and I kind of talked about this this morning. Just think, for all eternity before the incarnation, the Father and the Son and the Spirit were spirit. Yes. There was no human uh, body until creation. God chose to create us human in his image, uh, and then later chose to send Christ as a human, fully God, fully man, for our salvation. Uh, so that was all part of God's plan. So that was a good thing. Creation was a good thing. Uh, there was a popular movement in, in the first century or later, second, second, third centuries, Gnosticism, yep. which was patterned somewhat out of Greek philosophy that said the body's bad. Spirit's good, but the body's bad. No, Christianity says the body's good. It's created. God said it was good in Genesis 1 and 2, and he created us in his image. 
And it's, it's no accident that the Gnostics were split into two groups. One group became very severe to their body. They would whip themselves, starve themselves. They practiced strict asceticism. But the other, because they said, my body is bad, so I'm just going to beat it up. But there was another group of the Gnostics who said, my body doesn't matter, so who cares if I'm immoral? And so it's interesting how the, there was a kind of sexual revolution there where they were saying, listen, I, it doesn't matter what I do with my body because the body isn't important. It's just about my soul. And so they actually so separated the two in their thinking that they would practice sexual morality with their body while thinking they were keeping their soul pure. So I think it's interesting that Jesus' resurrected body is a body, a, a physical body. Now, there's a spiritual aspect of it, and I don't understand the peering behind the doors and all that, and Groom says we shouldn't make too much to do with that, but I wouldn't be surprised it's a mystery, I'll put it that way. <laughs> yep. Scott? Yeah, since we're in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 20, uh, which is someone has said this is sort of the cry of Easter. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In terms of that first fruits language, I remember studying this a while back, and uh, I don't remember who said this, but they said it's sort of like a, a crop. You plant your, your crop, and you're waiting for it to, to come out, and you're going day by day out there. And someday you go out there and all of a sudden there's this corn stalk has arisen up out of the, the ground. And he said, that's the first fruits of the harvest, meaning there's going to be a, a crop just like this. Well, Jesus is that, sort of like that first corn stalk, so, so to speak, rising up. And we're going to have resurrected bodies like that. And I was thinking Philippians 3.20, uh, I'm trying to memorize more scripture, so I may mess this up. But Philippians 3.20 says, uh, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. And I love the certainty of scripture, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So I love that. He is going to. He will transform our lowly body to be like Jesus' body. Michael Horton said, his resurrection is the first of the same resurrection that you, are, you and I are a part of. That's just absolutely mind-blowing. I just love that from a guy like Horton. He's a brilliant guy. He's just like, this is mind-blowing, the fact that I'm going to have a resurrected body one day. I think if we would live in light of this, it would totally change things. I mean, we would just be filled with joy and excitement about what is to come, the certainty of this. Since Christ has raised, we're going to have a resurrection body. As D.L. Moody said, the death cannot touch. One day we'll actually have a resurrected body. That'll be amazing. Yep. Never been this close before. That's right. That's right. Come, One day close fast. Yes, yes, we are. Um, let's, let's read about I think it's, this is too good. I'm afraid we might uh, not get there unless we read it. Look at verse 35. In okay. uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, Mark, you want to go, is that what they, 35? I think so. Yep. 35 to about 49 there. Okay. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. Uh, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. 
Don't you love that contrast there, uh, especially in 42? Sown perishable, raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown in natural body, raised in spiritual body. Any thoughts on uh, that, any of these? Yeah, just a, a misunderstanding. Spiritual body doesn't mean that there's not a physical aspect of the body. I think that's so easy to misunderstand. This is of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes the body, but this doesn't mean our body is non-physical. Jesus' body was physical. He went in pains to show that he had a physical body. Give me the fish. I'm going to eat it. This, I'm a real person. I'm a real, I have a physical body. So it is, it is a body given by the Spirit, but it is, non, it is not non-physical. Scott? Oh, I think that's good. Mark, could you talk a little bit more about the life-giving Spirit, though, like Jesus, that part? You've talked about how much you like this portion, right, in 1 Corinthians 15, about G the difference between Jesus and Adam, some? Uh, I'm trying to remember what you're thinking of. I mean, you, I think you preached it. Maybe you mentioned it. Maybe if, you, if you're blanking, it's, it's all good. Oh, you mean like the word born in Adam? In, in... Yeah, like the difference how Jesus is. I think that portion where uh, the first man, Adam, was, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, something in there, or maybe not. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can I, don't, I don't have it off the top of my head, but you can contrast just Adam and Christ in yeah. this regard as the two heads of the human race, the federal heads, the representatives. And when you contrast them, uh, they become so opposite, and it's just powerful to think about how, you know, they both were tested in the garden, right? The garden of Gethsemane and the garden of Eden. In, in one case, Adam had everything he could ever want. In the other case, Jesus had everything you would not want facing him. Uh, Adam, although he had everything he could ever want, chose against that to separate himself from God. Jesus, as an act of obedience, chose to separate himself from God for the sins of others. And you, you go on and on, and uh, it's a pretty powerful contrast that, that, that Paul loves to bring up the, mm -hmm. the, between Adam and Jesus. Yes. Yeah, no, that's good. And Romans 5 is great on that. Yeah, Papa? And, and Jesus is the new Adam. I mean, what a, what a legacy. Yeah. What a, no, that, what a glory. Mm, that's for sure. Um, I guess let's close kind of here with getting sort of practical. But before we do that, that because that, it, it ends in such a glorious way, that, uh, the end of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. But do you guys know about, I, we don't talk much about the ascension, I don't think, and uh, Groom just spends a page or two about it. But do you think, are there historians, how do historians that are not, you know, believing in Scripture, as, I mean, talk about that or uh, describe that? Does anybody know that? Is there... How non-Christians view the ascension? Yeah, or, or even historians. Do they, Josephus and those guys, does anybody write about, how did Jesus, do they feel like he died again? I guess they don't maybe believe in the resurrection in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think the resurrection is going to be the different, the different point. So, I mean, yeah. in ancient history, there's, there's just unanimous, un, until you get to the, it's funny, until you get to the Quran 500 years later, everybody says Jesus died on the cross. I mean, that's just universal Everybody. I mean, just look at anybody, Christian, non-Christian, everybody talking about it for centuries. Yeah, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Uh, that, that's what happened. And of course, the, the, the disagreement is going to be what happened three days later. That, that's yeah. where the, the, the difference is going to be. But yeah, the, the crucifixion is unbelievably well attested in ancient sources. Yeah. What, uh, why is the ascension important? Well, for one thing, he went to a place. You know, I, th I think of, is it um, John 14... Um, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So he's going. 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So that is our hope. He's, he's got a home for us, and he's going to come back, and he's going to take us. He later says in, in John that he's going to give us his spirit in the interim as a helper. And, and, uh, and, but, but that, you know, we know spiritually that we're in Christ and Christ in us and we in him. I mean, that's, that's something exciting to look forward to. We have a place to go. It's called heaven. And, and you know, from the time you're a little kid, you're talking about heaven. And uh, we're still talking about it. And so he went to a place called heaven. Here it is authenticated in the scripture. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven in Luke uh, 24. And uh, then he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight uh, from Acts. Uh, and if I go, I'm going to take you too. You know, a John 14 idea for that's, sure there. That's and right. Jerry, can I just real quick, just a flip side to that. Just think of the opposite. If Jesus did not rise from the dead... Yes, Christianity would then be false. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. But think about what that means. If Jesus couldn't defeat death, are you going to? Just think honestly. Like If Jesus did not defeat death, who has defeated death? Whoever could defeat death? Who's going to be greater than Jesus who's going to come along and actually defeat death? If, it, if, if we cannot defeat death, then that means, let's be depressing for a second. Let's be realistic. Everything you're investing your life in one day will not matter. Because one day the sun is going to burn out, the human race will be extinct, there will be nothing but the cold vacuum of, of space going out for, for thousands and thousands of millions of years with no one there to see it and no one there to know and no one there to care. So whether you lived a virtuous life or a life full of vice, whether you were helping the poor or hurting the poor, whether you were exploiting and stealing or bending over to help others, whatever you did, who cares? You came from nothingness, according to atheistic evolution. You came from nothingness. You're headed towards extinction. How could what you do in the middle actually matter? And the answer is, we only have the illusion that our life matters, if atheism is true. You can make up a subjective sense of, I'm going to, you know, earn so much money this year. I'm going to do this and that with my life. I'm going to in invent purpose for myself and try to fulfill it. One day that will be forgotten, and one day that will not matter. So, the resurrection is not just a, a fact of history that's true. It's our only hope that anything in your life matters or will matter one day is that Jesus rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead, therefore right now counts forever. Th that's, that's the argument. Otherwise, we have no hope. Otherwise, there's no hope for anybody. And Paul says that. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, now, this is where I find fascinating. He goes there, he tells us, okay, what would it be like if there wasn't any? Ah, uh, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your uh, faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, which is, I think, what you're saying, Mark, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And I love verse 19 here. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. And, you know, that's, I think that's just what you're saying, Papa. Well, just think about this. I mean, all of us in this room, regardless of who you are, have lost someone close to you. And, and, and your hope, if you're a believer, is that you will be with them again for all eternity one day, if they're a believer. And uh, 
So what if that was not true? And what, what are you hoping in? The next new car or you know, set of blue jeans or favorite blue jeans or, or be miserable. Next book or something, you know? You would be miserable. Yeah. That's for sure. Scott, could you finish this from fifty to fifty eight? Because sure. there is a lot of, I think, practical things um, to do now mm-hmm. because of this. Yeah. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse oh, 50. 15. Uh, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Yeah, which I can just, I can tack on, start on this, because Mark is saying, like, without the resurrection, nothing matters. But in light of the resurrection, everything matters, matters. which is what you've talked about on Easter many times. But that last verse, I love this verse. I'll read it again, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's a great verse to memorize. I think just keep it up. This is, this is what I got to do every day. But Tom Schreiner in his commentary on this, he, he says that therefore is in light of everything Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, a conclusion is drawn. And this is what Schreiner said. Since sins are forgiven through Christ, since death has been conquered, and since believers have an indestructible hope of a future resurrection, they're encouraged to stand firm in the gospel and not move away from the hope they have. They are to give themselves gladly and fully to the Lord's work. The hope of the resurrection should propel believers to perseverance and labor in what is good. So gladly and fully, I love those two words he chose, but I would say we need to get after it. I think you would say that. We need to shake off the laziness, the slothfulness that so easily creeps in. We got to get, get rid of that stuff. We got to give ourselves gladly and fully to the Lord's work. I would take the word gladly. Like we, if we do it begrudgingly, we're not honoring God. If we're doing this, even if we're giving ourselves wholeheartedly, but we're not doing it with joy, we're not honoring God begrudgingly. So we should be doing this with joy. And I thought of John Newton's famous story about the guy who's going to inherit the millions of dollars. He's riding in his carriage, horse and buggy. It breaks down a mile outside of the, the city, and he's got to walk that last mile. And Newton said, what a fool we would thank him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My garage is broken. So if this guy is inheriting millions of dollars, we think him a fool if he was saying that the whole rest of the way. Well, how much more us? Yeah. If we're doing it begrudgingly in light of the eternal hope that we have in Christ and in light of all that's true of us, we should be doing this with, with joy, but we should also be giving ourselves fully because our labor is not in vain. Don Whitney says, God sees and knows all your service to him and he will never forget it. He will reward you in heaven for it because he is a faithful and just God. So, I mean, it's so practical. You think of the, the mom changing like throw up at 3 a.m. No one else sees it, but God sees it. If it's done for his glory, God will seize it and will reward it one day. And I, I thought of this quote from a, uh, a pastor named Andrew Davis talking about godly moms. He said this, if even the giving of a cup of cold water to a messenger of Christ will never lose its reward, Matthew 10:42, how much more the daily thoughtful, skillful work of a godly wife 
who provides countless meals for her husband, washes his clothes, keeps his home orderly, prays for him, encourages him in his struggles, blesses him with wise counsel, nurses him to health when he's sick. How Christ-like is this servant? And how guaranteed is such a godly wife of eternal rewards from Almighty God? And Jerry, I thought of Amy. Could you talk about Amy for a second? You've talked about Amy. Like so often, the stuff she does behind the scenes, nobody else maybe sees her. You see, but yeah. we don't see. But God sees, and one day he's going to reward her oh, magnificently. Yeah. You talk about eternal rewards because <laughs> of the continual craziness that she helps me with this day in and day out. No fanfare, continually behind the scenes, but faithful, steadfast. Those words right there, that's her. Uh, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And, and she has to see it like that, because otherwise you would say sayonara. <laughs> Right, whatever that means. So you would say, <laughs> I'm, I'm out of here. This is a ridiculous, you know, what we're dealing with. And, uh, but yet there's this faithful, joyful service. And, uh, and, man, I've run into that with how many different people that have served me in my life, you know, with that kind of an attitude, for sure. Very humbling. But, no, thanks for that. The, um, I, I would like to say Dr. Miller... Uh, we were in 1 Corinthians 15 in Bible college, and he had us write down the gospel in 15 words. And, uh, and it was, we, we should have known what was coming, but I didn't get it figured out until too late. <laughs> and, uh, and most of us wrote down 15 words, talking about Jesus dying on the cross, our sins, things like that, but didn't include the resurrection. And he gave us a pretty good rebuke on that. Those 15 words, if you're writing 15, they better include the resurrection because it's a big big, huge part of the gospel. Any kind of thoughts on that to encourage us to always include that when we're talking to somebody? Papa? You know, the resurrection, we, we talked, we went through Hebrews a while back, and the Hebrews was really, um, to me now, the Hebrews is uh, uh, dedicated to the enthronement of Christ as the, at the right hand of God as, as our great high priest. And, and so, the, the ascension is, is really the authentication. He's, he's ascending so he can be at the right hand of God and assume that enth enthronement. So the, the ascension is an authentication that the work has been done. It's been, it is finished. Tetelestai. It's, it's been accomplished on the cross. The death, burial, resurrection. Now he's going to be the Father and intercede for us for all eternity. So uh, that's why I think it's so significant. It's another chapter in his work, and then they call it session. I wonder if he's Presbyterian or not. <laughs> yeah. But, but I'm talking about Grudem. But uh, you know that that's just part of God's plan. Uh, you know, we don't understand His plan, but it's, it 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 makes sense. It's a natural follow through to Christ's work on the cross. Well, just on that point, Christ's central work was His life, death, resurrection, but His ascension is His ongoing work. He is right now interceding for His people, like Romans 8 says. Uh, he's interceding right now for His people. He's available right now for us. He is there. He is present. He is aware. He is watching. He is caring. He is sending His Spirit to comfort, to encourage us, to reassure us, to convince us of the truth, to convince us of our unrighteousness and His righteousness. I mean, Jesus is actively right now working on behalf of His people. That's what He's doing. And so, we can sometimes think of it as His past work only. But yes, the central events are past. They are historical. They are, they are finished in, in that sense. But His current work is ongoing. His, his work at the right hand of the Father is happening right now. And, and I have to add, uh, Robert Murray McShane, that famous pastor who wrote the McShane reading plan, and he also died and is, I think, 29 years old. 
But McShane said, uh, if you could hear Jesus praying for you in the next room, you would not fear a thousand enemies. And He is wow. praying for you. He's praying for you right now. So, that, that's, we don't want to forget His ongoing work in the ascension. That's so good. And then the Holy Spirit is too. And then Jesus is God's force who can be against us, all three of the Trinity. Papa? Well, yeah, Groom's kind of funny here on page uh, 267. He says, the fact that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God in heaven does not mean he's perpetually fixed there or he's inactive. And that's what you were saying, Mark. He has a very prominent role in, in our lives on a going forward basis since the resurrection. Yeah, that's Thank great. You. Papa, can you pray? Sure, I'd love to. Father, I'm, I'm reminded, I, I wanted to go here earlier, and it's, it's uh, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because 500 years ago, Martin Luther read these words and, and the scales fell from his eyes. And it's Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, and that's what we've just been describing in all of its glory. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thank you, Lord, for your plan of salvation, which you initiated before the, even the creation of the world, when you chose us in you. Uh, and then you carried that out through uh, the millennia that have taken place since that time. Uh, we thank you for the gift of your life. Thank you for the gift of your salvation, uh, your death, your resurrection, your ascension. And now, seated at the right hand of God, you are interceding for us uh, in all things and in all ways. And we give you all the glory for that and just can't wait to be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you for investing in... Um, God's Word, Common Grace, uh, next week. If you get a chance, read uh, page 273 and following. Thank you.